0: Belief is not a modern problem. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. Satan's suggestion that Adam and Eve could be like God presented God as being out of reach to humanity. And as such, humanity would be free to live as if God did not exist. In that moment, unbelief was born. In the context of Psalm 10, the oppressed have been crying out for justice and yet the wicked prosper. There is seemingly no justice. God seems absent, and thus comes unbelief. Yet as David soon discovers, God is very much present and at work, and his unbelief is dispelled. As noted in the study of Psalm 9, chapters 9 and 10 are written in an acrostic pattern based on the Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 9 covers the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The last 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are used here in Psalm 10. And as such, Psalm 9 and 10 were once one psalm, which is reflected in the ancient manuscripts and translations such as the Septuagint. So as we look at Psalm chapter 10, and we're entitled to the cry of the oppressed, we're going to see in verses 1 through 11, the oppression of the wicked. And then in verses 12 to 18, the overcoming by the godly. The overcoming by the godly. So let's begin with verse 1 through 11. We're going to deal with the oppression of the wicked. And we're going to start with David's appeal in verses 1 and 2. The oppression of the wicked, David's appeal, verses 1 and 2. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. David begins with a very bold question. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? God, of course, may be distant for several reasons. On the one hand, our sin may make him seem distant when the real distance is our doing. Same goes for doubt. On the other hand, God, for his own reasons, may choose not to act. As we saw back in Psalm 9, God may be exercising his passive wrath by letting sin run its course. Often, the matter is simply one of timing, and the eternal God is not accountable to our schedule. David's complaint about God's distance is elaborated upon in the next question, why do you hide in times of trouble? The term trouble here means death or destitution. David continues, in pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. This wicked person or people are violently and actively engaged in crushing those who are helpless. Those whose only refuge is the Lord. And then David offers a curse. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. This picks up on that common theme that God exercises his judgment through the moral order of life itself. Evil people in planning the doom of others really plan their own doom. Now notice the arrogance in verses 3 to 5 of the wicked. We have David's appeal in verses 1 and 2. Now we see the wicked's arrogance in verses 3 to 5. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desires. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. David continues his complaint by pointing out that the wicked boast of his heart's desires and the greedy curses and spurns the Lord. You see, it is greed that motivates his pursuit of the poor, of destroying the afflicted. In standing with the greedy, David denotes that the wicked renounces the Lord. The statement in verse 4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him, is another way of saying that pride separates people from God. You cannot seek God and at the same time seek yourself. We cannot serve two masters. For the wicked, however, not only is God not the object of his search, God doesn't even enter his mind. That's why David says God is in none of his thoughts. The description of the wicked continues in verse 5. His ways are always prospering. The verb for prospering here means to be strong, to be firm, be stable. See, the wicked are on the top. They seem to be in charge. They're always steadfast. They're always abounding. And David next observes the wicked man's attitude towards God. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. See, in other words, David's saying it said the more the wicked sin, the more they or the rather, not the more, but the less they know of God. And the more distant God becomes to the man or the woman's experience, the more his or her heart is hardened. And not only is God absent from the wicked person's experience, but his enemies are too weak to dent his ego. See, that's the thing. Is that you wanna, you wanna, one of the first things you need to note about a wicked person, they've got a massive ego. It's all about them. And David writes, for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. This is the picture of a charging bull, panting in anger. And, and, and basically, that's what a wicked person acts like. This bull snorting and ready to charge at his enemies. He's just so full of, of rage and anger and, and himself. And now look at the assumption in verses 6 through 11. The wicked's assumption. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes steadily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself... God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Secure against both God and his enemies, the wicked man inwardly boasts in arrogance, saying in his heart, I will not be moved. In other words, he says, Nothing can touch me. This, my friends, is functional atheism. His ego has eclipsed God. And next, he exposes his heart through his mouth. His mouth is full of curses, deceit, and oppression. The word curses here is used in legal and covenantal settings to mean an oath. Now, in the mouth of a wicked person, the oath goes bad. Deceit is crafty speech. In other words, he hides the truth for evil ends. And the word oppression has the root meaning to tread underfoot. In other words, he uses his mouth to intimidate, to mislead, and to force submission. That's a wicked person. And in a series of poetic pictures, David turns from what the wicked person thinks, and David says, here's what he does. He sits in the lurking places of villages. In the hiding places, he murders the innocent. David pictures him as lurking in a dark alley, ready to pounce and murder the innocent. In verse 9, he changes the metaphor. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair to catch the afflicted. The ambush in the village now becomes the lion's den. The emphasis here is on the secrecy and deception of the wicked as they seemingly attack and take out the innocent or the afflicted. Have you ever wondered why dictators rise with a Machiavellian contempt for human life? Have you ever wondered why major industries market sex and violence to pre-adolescent children through toys and music? Have you ever wondered why international corporations exploit cheap labor and natural resources, leaving land and people stripped bare in third world countries? It's right here. The wicked have forgotten God. See, they think that God has hidden his face, that he'll never see it. In other words, the wicked thinks God's not omniscient, I'm not accountable to him. God's not omnipresent, and therefore I can do as I please. And since God will never see what I'm doing, I can do whatever I want. That's the attitude of the wicked. And that answers the question, of uh, those questions we just asked. Whatever evil is lurking out there, it goes back to the fact that they think there is no God. They're functional atheists. I don't care what comes out of their lips. You can't trust, oh, I believe in God. You can't trust that because their lips are full of deceit. They'll tell you they believe God. They'll tell you they're God-fearing. Watch their actions. Watch their actions. It will reveal them for who they truly are. Now, as we move to verses 12 to 18, we leave behind the oppression of the wicked, and now we turn our attention to the overcoming by the godly. And we see David's appeal in, verses, uh, verses, uh, in verse 12, rather. David's appeal. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. He's exhausted his description of the wicked. He now abruptly calls upon Yahweh to intervene. He is so disgusted and overwhelmed by evil, he says, God, if you do not act, human cruelty is going to triumph and the innocent are going to be ground into dust. And as we saw back in Psalm 9, verse 19, Arise, O Lord, is a call to battle, a summon for God to take to the field of battle against the wicked man. And the parallel there, O God, lift up your hand, expresses the same, same thought. It's a gesture that symbolizes taking up arms against an opponent. Now David outlines his argument here in verses 13 to 16. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, You will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You've been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Why has the wicked spurned God? The answer follows very simply here in verses 13 to 16. He has said to himself, you will not require it. The word require, there is a legal term for interrogation, investigation. The wicked person has renounced God and and, and believes God's not going to investigate this. God's not looking into this because there is no God. And so he decries God's justice and judgment. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The wicked man's in for the shock of his lifetime when Yahweh arises against him. And in contrast to the wicked, David says he trusts in the living God even in times of silence. While the wicked claims God's ignorance and absence, David knows otherwise. He ha- God has seen their boasting, seen their greed, seen their murderous spirit, seen their oppression, seen their grief of the poor. The poor have been vexed by the injustice they have received. They grieve at the repression and loss. And I want you to notice something here, the whole value system in this psalm. The wicked pursue the poor, the innocent, the helpless, the humble, the orphan, while Yahweh saves the poor, the innocent, the helpless, the humble, the orphan. God is on the side of the defenseless, the broken, the alienated. He stands with the outsider and the underdog. And David now turns from the promise of mercy for the orphan to judgment upon the oppressor. He says, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. That's some strong language there. Break the arm. Render them powerless. If his arms are broken, they cannot continue to attack the poor. David says, seek out his wickedness. That is, avenge his wicked behavior. God's apparent distance and silence are about to be broken. And the question of verse 1, why do you stand so far away, Lord, is about to be answered. Notice David's assurance in verses 17 and 18. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. In verse 17, David turns from confession to adoration. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. The same word used for humble here is translated afflicted in verse 9. God knows their need for deliverance. They're longing for salvation. He continues, David continues, you will prepare their heart. The word prepare means to establish, make them firm, make them secure. See, God hears and acts. He's going to take away fear. He's going to make firm the hearts of the poor so that they, the oppressed, will know peace. God will incline his ear to their prayers. And the result is that God will destroy the oppressor and deliver the oppressed. And when God reigns, then peace will reign. And so we ask, is God absent? At times, he may seem to be, especially in the midst of persecution, especially in times of oppression. However, as David considers this, he does not speculate on how his faith can grow when his prayers are unanswered. He doesn't speculate on what the poor are supposed to learn about persecution and oppression. David doesn't even offer any theological possibilities about God's self-limitation in this world. Rather, in faith, David sees the oppression, he hears the egotism of the wicked, and he cries out, Arise, O Lord. God, do something. And that something is break the arms of the wicked. So I ask, do you expect God to answer your prayers? Do you experience God as the living God? Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1.19 was that we may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. And let our prayer be that God would deliver us from our practical atheism of unbelief. Father God, we thank and praise you that you've given us this psalm. That Lord, while you may be silent, it doesn't imply that you're in agreement with wickedness. While you may be silent, there's a host of reasons for it. Perhaps it's our sin. Perhaps it's your long-suffering and patience. Or perhaps, Lord, it's just you're working things out on a whole different timetable than ours. But, Father, help us to be delivered from unbelief. Help us to be delivered from that practical atheism that thinks, well, you're seemingly silent, so you must not be there. Help us to know, Father, that you are there at all times. And that you are actively working. And whether it's preparing the battlefield, whether it's uh, it's turning the, the, the wickets, uh, plots against them, whatever it may be, that Lord, we might know that you are there, you are present, and you are at work in delivering the oppressed. Father, as we look around this world, we see much oppression, we see much evil. And Father, I pray that as believers... That, Lord, we would not turn a blind eye to that oppression. That, Lord, we would not just uh, uh, file it away or try to brush it on the carpet. But that, Lord, we would see it and call it out for what it is. That we would cry out to you when we see oppression. And, And that, Lord, you would deliver the afflicted from such oppression. That, Father, those wicked people in high places might have their arms broken. That they no longer can oppress The poor, the orphan, the hopeless, the helpless that are under them. We pray this in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.